0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses.
1: This is
0: the Finding Genius Podcast
1: with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Peter Novodvorsky. Uh, He's an honorary clinical lecturer at University of Sheffield, in the UK. He's also a consultant a diabetologist dealing with diabetes in Slovakia. And we're going to talk about uh, the effects of hypoglycemia on the human body. Hypo meaning uh, sugar is too low versus hyperglycemia. So, Peter, thanks for coming.
2: Oh, hello, Richard. Thanks for inviting me. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, to be talking to you and, in fact, to the others uh, who are listening.
1: Yeah, just right off the bat, uh, what are the uh, physiological effects of hypo versus hyper? glycemia and which is more dangerous
2: oh that's a very interesting uh question i would probably answer simple that simply that uh, both of them the hyper so the high glycemia and the hypo the low glycemia are uh, dangerous in uh, different ways but also the, the latest research has shown that there might all even be some sort of common uh, reasons why why these two uh, can be Dangerous. So it's it's best to stay in normal glycemia. So the normal glucose levels and uh, either deviation up or down can be uh, dangerous. Really.
1: So um, why hypoglycemia? What uh, what are you studying about it? Are you helping to mitigate it in people where they have less events where they go hypoglycemic, or like what's what's the reasoning?
2: That's right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I've been working closely with. the uh, Ahmed Iqbal, who has given, you know, a nice podcast, uh, you know, uh, here. And uh, he's mentioned a few things there. And we both worked in Sheffield in the United Kingdom with uh, Simon Heller, one of the sort of leading experts in the hypoglycemia research. And uh, my particular focus is on what the hypoglycemia does to your heart and to the cardiac rhythm and in general, the cardiovascular risk, that means the risk of uh, uh, people uh, who have diabetes getting a cardiovascular disease.
1: Oh, well, okay. So if someone has cardiovascular disease or I would guess other comorbidities of diabetes, what does that do? Does that put them into a more hypoglycemic state or does it make it easier for them to go into that state or not recover from it? Like what's the implications?
2: Oh, yeah. So I would see the bit differently then. You know, the uh, perhaps I'll you know give you a few uh, sort of insights into the history as you know today or you know this year we're celebrating the 100th, 100th year uh anniversary of of discovering insulin and uh, since then we've been also dealing with the problem of low sugar levels you know these have been described uh, by you know Frederick Banting James Collip the guys who have in fact discovered insulin very early after the discovery of insulin that uh, too much insulin perhaps or um, you know inadequate num- amount of insulin uh, you know in, in comparison to to uh, the amount of uh, of, sac- of of carbohydrates ingested or or say too much exercise can really drive your sugar too low and uh, that can be a very unpleasant to the person who uh, who, who has the hypoglycemia and also can be uh, potentially dangerous in very many ways uh, and uh, i'm very happy to discuss those uh, further but in general you know the the problem with hypoglycemia we have had since the very invention or sorry discovery of insulin and we're still dealing with that uh, in in our daily practice
1: all right so what what do people feel like when they go hypoglycemia what's the common anecdote
2: yeah so the so the common uh, symptoms are um so-called uh, autonomic symptoms or neurogenic symptoms and these result from the sort of activation of our um, sympatoadrenal um, uh, response or, um, you know, the release of adrenaline or noradrenaline, epinephrine or norepinephrine uh, into the body. And uh, these can be, say, for example, you feeling a bit shaky, tremulous, increased sweating uh, uh, or increased hunger. But uh, there are also some other so-called neuroglycopenic symptoms which are potentially more dangerous because as you will know glucose is an obligatory fuel to your brain and uh, the brain just needs adequate amounts of of glucose to function normally so if you don't have it if you have low sugar levels the brain starts uh, or, or stops functioning normally so you can have a bit of disorientation confusion and uh, in more severe cases, in fact, there can be seizures, coma, or even death.
1: Right. So, what is what is hypoglycemia? I would think it's different slightly for everybody, but there's probably a range of uh, blood, uh, blood sugar.
2: Indeed, indeed, you're right. There is a there is a wide range, and there is uh, this is one of the reasons why he, the definition of hypoglycemia has been evolving uh, over the over the years, and uh, uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, so various people react differently to various levels of blood glucose, and these uh, reactions can even change within the time. We know that uh, people who have uh, the so-called the type 1 diabetes who need to inject their insulin from the very onset of their disease are a bit more prone to hypoglycemia for various reasons, uh, because they, mainly because they have impaired counter-regulatory mechanisms, impaired defense mechanisms against hypoglycemia. And uh, if you do get few of these, then you're more prone to get another one. So there is a bit of a vicious circle there. Uh, so the hypoglycemia begets another hypoglycemia is the is the is perhaps the, the, the way how to describe that. So um, you're right, there is a variability in people and also in that particular person over time.
1: Is there a rebound mechanism in the body? You know, it's always trying to control blood sugar. So if you go too high sugar, is there yeah. an effect that'll pull it down? I mean, the insulin, but what else? If you go very low, yes. what's the body's effect? How does it try to uh, fix it quickly?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Ahmed Igbo has mentioned this briefly, but just, just very briefly, You, the natural defense against hypoglycemia in a healthy person is that your pancreas stops producing insulin. And when that doesn't help, the second defense mechanism is that your pancreas starts producing another hormone called glucagon. And that has an opposite effect on, on glucose levels. So the glucagon effect on the liver and uh, and on the on the muscles is that you get a release of, of glucose from the liver and the, the glycemia goes up. And if this doesn't help, then, then we have the third, the ultimate uh, mechan- defense mechanism, which is the the adrenal sympathetic adrenal response so adrenaline gets released and this has a profound effect on various parts of the body and the net effect is that the the blood glucose levels go up and, uh, and in people with diabetes uh, in particular with type 1 diabetes these defense mechanisms are um, sometimes or you know commonly non-existing the first two and the third mechanism the, the sympathetic adrenal response can get attenuated over time. So the the response to the subsequent low sugar or, or hypoglycemia gets less pronounced, and that can be sometimes dangerous. We, we're talking about the impaired awareness of hypoglycemia.
1: Yeah. Again, in plain English, what happens when someone gets very low blood sugar? Do they get confused? Do they, you know, does their heart speed up? Do they you know, yeah. get hot
2: or cold, thirsty, whatever. That's right. They, they can have various symptoms. They can get hot, cold, sweaty, shaky, tremulous. They can have re- impaired vision. And uh, in terms of their heart, uh, naturally, because the adrenaline kicks in, there is a tendency towards uh, increased heart rate. So those are called tachycardia. So increased heart rate. Yet though, yet though uh, the research we've done uh, in Sheffield has shown that in some people, Understandably, not all, but in some people, prolonged uh, uh, hypoglycemia during the night might, in fact, cause uh, the slowing of the heart rate, the so-called bradycardia, which can be dangerous in, in different ways. So we, now we're talking more about the effects on the heart. But yeah, in general, people can get various symptoms which are very unpleasant and some of the most severe episodes uh, can end up, uh, in fact, uh, very badly for the person involved.
1: So what are you trying to figure out? Uh, you're trying to figure out how to prevent it or just how to mitigate these episodes or what's your goal?
2: Yeah. So in, say if we were talking about, say, 20 years ago or so, you, we would only be talking about the detrimental effects of hypoglycemia in terms of those symptoms I mentioned. So those uh, autonomic symptoms, uh, these unpleasant symptoms of shakiness or hunger or sweating, and those of the increased confusion, you know, the neuroglycopenic symptoms. But uh, since then, we moved on and uh, we know that hypoglycemia has got much more wider negative impact on human body, in particular on the cardiovascular system. And uh, that's perhaps not so surprising because, uh, as we've mentioned this before a few times, it leads to the activation of the sympathoadrenal Uh, 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 system or the uh, the adrenaline gets uh, released and this can happen at various conditions under stress circumstances and too much stress for your body understandably is not good and uh, the defense mechanism can then turn against the against the body when it's uh, when it's uh, too much of it there indeed
1: so what's the focus of your research into hypoglycemia you looking at type 1 type 2 or you're looking at it during yes. sleep um, yeah. right before yes. you eat or after you eat you know what's where you're hoping to intervene
2: yeah so we've uh, we've been looking at uh, uh, the hypoglycemia effect on on the cardiac rhythm on the heart this comes from uh, uh, the fact that there is a so-called dead in bed syndrome which sounds a bit scary and indeed it is uh, which is a unfortunately rare even, but well described that people with type 1 diabetes, who were otherwise young and healthy, uh, have been found dead in their beds on the on the following morning and uh, right. before that there was no sign of any severe illness, hence, hence the name, and this has been described in the early 90s uh, in the UK, and since then we have had other reports from other parts of the world and. Uh, my mentor, mentor, Professor Heller, has researched into this. We have shown that the uh, possible possible mechanism uh, of of these deaths could be um, indeed the uh, hypoglycemia, which has then led to cardiac uh, uh, arrhythmias. Uh, so, so I've, when I joined the group, we we designed a study when where we were looking at uh, the effects of uh, uh, so-called clinical hypoglycemia, so the one which occurs normally when the people carry on with their normal lives, uh, and we put on uh, people the blinded continuous glucose monitors and the halter ECGs, and we, look, we were looking at what was happening during the hypoglycemia versus the normal glycemic levels. Mm. And uh, what we yeah, found... What did you
1: observe?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we found a few interesting observations. So initially, we... Uh, uh, realized that the hypoglycemia frequency is actually far uh, more frequent than you might have thought uh, or what the data were, uh, did show before, because the data in the past used to rely on uh, the fact that the people who were examined put down in their diaries uh, that they had hypoglycemia when, when they felt it. But when you have the luxury of blinded continuous glucose monitor, you, you notice that There are very many hypoglycemic episodes, in particular during the night, who go unnoticed by by those people. So that's what we found is that the the, the finding number one was that the hypoglycemia is far more common uh, than than you might have thought. And secondly, uh, that uh, we found that during this period, when we're looking at these people for four days and four nights, uh, there was much, uh, the the majority of the nocturnal hypoglycemia went unnoticed, and uh, approximately every other uh, hypoglycemic event during the day went unnoticed. So that was the first major finding. We also found that the hypoglycemic uh, episodes during the night are generally longer compared to those uh, during the day. And thirdly, we also confirmed that uh, hypoglycemia leads to so-called QT interval prolongation. That is the measure of how how quickly the heart resets uh, in terms of the electrical activity. And this QT prolongation is a a dangerous thing which can potentially lead to some disturbances of cardiac rhythm in general.
1: I've heard that until recently insulin pumps were not interacting with uh, CGMs, which seems to me kind of insane because, you know, like every night you go to sleep, you, you may not wake up. The insulin pump could just pump you to death and you're finished, you know.
2: Yeah, well, this is, of course, this is a potentially very dangerous thing. And therefore, there are various regulations in place. You will know that there are also people who do a bit of a DUI in, in in terms of their insulin pumps. But in general, we have this technology, which is lovely, wonderful and uh, very quickly evolving. And we have data which have shown that um, the insulin pumps and uh, the CGM and then the combination of those, those two together in particular, in a in a setting when the pump can react on the on the data from the CGM, can prevent uh, hypoglycemia, can prevent nocturnal hypoglycemia. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And also can increase the so called time in range, which is uh, the uh, uh, the time spent in the blood glucose range uh, which is which is sort of physiological or near physiological between say uh, 70 and 180 milligrams per deciliter so we have the wonderful technology which helps us to tackle hypoglycemia yet though the hypoglycemia uh, is still present and will be for for quite a long time I
1: guess. so what would be the intervention when someone's sleeping to prevent them from having uh you know hypoglycemia events
2: Right, yeah. Uh, So there are some uh, continuous glucose monitors, CGMs, which uh, uh, you can set up uh, to alert you. Uh, And that can be visual, that can be be sort of a a signal uh, in terms of audio signal, you know, uh, ringing, um, vibration, which can then wake you up. And uh, this works quite well uh, for people also during the day. And that's those who have the so-called impaired awareness of hypoglycemia. That's people who uh, genuinely can't feel when their hypos are commencing. So we have the technology to, to alert you uh, when you're using the CGM uh, via the Bluetooth. It, it can't be the, the flash glucose monitoring uh, or at, at least not the first generation of the flash glucose monitoring, which you needed to swipe to find out what your sugar levels were. But the classic CGM has been helpful a lot in, uh, in this clinical problem.
1: So, I mean, besides waking someone up, why not have a insulin pump that also has a little bit of, uh, you know, sugar in it? So it can pump maybe tiny amounts of sugar. I mean, that'd be an interesting experiment if uh, someone was sleeping and they were hooked up to an IV and it gave little pulses of uh, of sugar whenever they went into a hypoglycemic state. I wonder what that would do to their sleep.
2: It would be certainly interesting. Uh, and I think people have thought about that, but it is perhaps not so easy to do And we have the so-called dual systems when the insulin pumps do not only infuse uh, insulin, but they also infuse uh, tiny amounts of glucagon. Uh, So there are some data on these which are promising, but uh, the situation is a a bit more complex than that because there are um, too many factors that influence um, your, your risk of going hypo on that particular day or night. Like for example, the amount of your meal, the timing of your meal, the content of your meal, the amount of physical activity, the type of physical activity you've been doing um, and, uh, and a few other things really. And they all go into a you know, a complex equation and, and, and that kind of estimates your risk or predicts the risk of you going low or high. And uh, we really need a better insulins i would say almost because the the algorithms in the pumps are pumps are quite good but we need insulins which react a bit faster so so these insulins which we're using are a bit slower compared to how our body works when everything's fine so in healthy people that's that's a major major difference and one of the major struggles for for those pumps to work better
1: yeah the the different uh, insulin i heard there's fast acting slow acting etc so yeah. When people have the different types, uh, what's the reaction when they're, uh, I mean, how does it, what's their blood sugar response? I mean, you wouldn't have one when you're hypoglycemic, but which one yeah. of them predisposes people more towards a hypoglycemic response?
2: Very nice question. Thank you for that. I mean, uh, just to give you a bit of an insight into physiology. So in a, in a healthy body, um, the insulin is produced in the so-called beta cells in the pancreas. And it's a very fine-tuned regulation, which occurs on a sort of almost second to second basis at least a minute to minute and this insulin gets released from the pancreas into the so-called portal vein that's the vein which goes or leads the blood flow the blood flows through the vein into the liver and the liver takes up more than 50% of that insulin that's the so-called first pass effect so this insulin gets cleared quite quickly from the from the uh, systemic circulation say for example and uh, uh, we have a half time of insulin of approximately a couple of minutes. That doesn't mean that the insulin stops working in a few minutes, but most of it is bound to the liver receptors. Uh, and, and this is completely different to what you have when you have somebody who has got diabetes and insulin-dependent diabetes, because as you know, we are infusing the insulin into a subcutaneous tissue uh, or intravenously in some circumstances. and there's a completely different dynamic of this release of that insulin from the depot into the, into the body, into the circulation. And that doesn't go into the liver that goes into the systemic circulation first. So it's a, it's a completely different, uh, way of, uh, the way how the insulin perhaps works or where it goes first and where it goes then. And so, so these are important differences, uh, which, which one needs to be aware of when you, when you're trying to, um, uh, Say design the systems or the insulins and everything to to prevent hypoglycemia. In fact, hyperglycemia really.
1: Well, what can you tell about the various mixtures? If, um, like, when someone takes insulin, do they take a blended mixture of fast and slow acting, or do they take just yeah. all fast? And-
2: yeah. So, so in general, we we divide those insulins, uh, as you will know, into those which are the so-called basal insulins, and these are insulins which are the long-acting insulins, and they are primarily designed to meet the the needs of the so-called basal metabolism. That means the, the body needs the insulin anyway, even if you don't eat anything, and uh, you know the metabolism needs to work properly, and without insulin, it's not possible. So that basal insulin injection, which usually happens once in a day or twice a day, usually at night, tries to, tries to mimic that sort of basal secretion of insulin, which our pancreas also does, and that type of insulin um, is you know can also. Pr- you know, uh, leads to a hypo and some types of insulins are better than the others. And the other type of insulin is this so-called fast or quick acting insulin. And that's the one you inject with your meals. And we have seen some great improvements in the, you know, in the design of these new insulins, so-called insulin analogs, where you have a bit of a modification of the insulin structure and that leads to uh, better properties in terms of how quickly the insulin works how quickly it gets off the system or say for example with the long-acting insulins you need to have a very flat profile that means that the insulin works pretty much constantly over time say 24 or 36 hours so there's generally the mixture of these two and then sometimes these are also mixed together in a fixed ratio that's the so-called premixed insulins but these are not used so frequently these days perhaps as, as they were in the past.
1: But I mean, clinically, is it better to have a mixture of different types, or
2: you mean, has you mean it not
1: been studied enough? You know, different formulations. Yeah. You
2: know? Oh, absolutely. So we have, um, you know, a couple of those, and uh, one size doesn't fit all, as as you will know. And one of the skills of 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 a clinician of a diabetologist is to pick the right type of insulin uh, and give the right type of insulin to uh, to the right person. But it's not so easy, as I mentioned. You know, the the, the people are you know of different age different um you know social background different level of education and and then they also lead different types of lives you know some people might lead sedentary lifestyles, some people do a lot of sports and these are all important factors which in fact determine what type of insulin treatment you get them i mean people with type 1 need it anyway people with type 2 we have a bit of a wider variety of medications apart from insulin and you just need to pick the one so that you achieve the best compensation or the best you know glucose control, which also includes prevention of hypose
1: um, you know I, I don't have a clinical diagnosis and neither does my wife but you know we've tried CGMs for a while mm-hmm. and um, I noticed with her like she'll have um, you know let's say if she had something she shouldn't have like a soda, Her uh, sugar will go up real high and then it'll crash down real low and she'll be hypo. But mine will go high and then it'll slowly come down. So our profiles look like completely different. Do you have any speculation on as to what factors modulate, you know, what your response profiles look
2: like? Yeah. Okay. Well, you both don't have the clinical diagnosis, diabetes, yet though, you know, the the reaction to, to some kind of a sugary meal is a bit different so in your in your wife uh, there might be an, an element of what we call an reactive hypoglycemia okay so if you ingest some uh, carbohydrates then your body might a bit you know overreact a bit if you, if you if you want and that might lead to this uh, kind of an overshoot of hypoglycemia which is usually can be sometimes a bit um, you know unpleasant to those people who, who uh, experience that but I would probably say that in, in your wife's case there's a bit of a, this kind of hypoglycemia happening uh, and uh, in your case uh, the even in every healthy person the the level of blood glucose so the glycemia goes up uh, after the ingestion of of a meal I mean the ingestion of a meal which contains sugar, saccharides. Uh, so this is entirely normal. Now, uh, in order to assess whether that that CGM curve is is completely normal or whether there is a bit of a pre-diabetes going on, I would need to see those, you know, the, those uh, the levels of the sugar or the on the CG, you know, the interstitial glucose you've been uh, you have recorded. But uh, it's entirely possible that every everybody is a bit different and. Uh, and uh, therefore, the the blood sugar profiles are a bit.
1: Well, oh, okay. So no, I know everyone's different. The sh- profiles are different, et cetera, But are there a couple of archetypes that are common? You know, in people that have, you know, let's say type two diabetes, or mm-hmm. is it that have those not been identified yet?
2: In terms of how how the sugar behaves, you mean?
1: Are there archetypes like oh, there's three types of, of sugar response, and these people do this, and these do that, and you know that kind of stuff?
2: Right. Yeah, there are indeed. There are. Uh, so let's let's talk about the the type one diabetes, so just a bit of an insight into the epidemiology at the moment we have around up to five hundred million people who have diabetes worldwide, but say more than ninety percent do have the so called type two diabetes uh, one or two percent might be the monogenic diabetes, and say the rest is the type one diabetes, so eight nine percent so if i if I start with say the the commonest one, the type two diabetes, which is Uh, linked with the the so-called insulin resistance or decreased sensitivity to insulin and is linked with obesity and other uh, cardiovascular diseases, or you say, say arterial hypertension or dyslipidemia, then in that situation, what we usually observe is that these people have preserved secretion of their insulin. So in fact, they have too much insulin. It's just not working properly due to the reasons I mentioned. And if you put CGM on those people, they would tend to have um, slightly elevated uh, fasting blood glucose readings. And the excursions of blood glucose when they take a meal would not be so pronounced as compared, Mm -hmm. say, for example, to people who have type 1 diabetes. Because those who have type 1 diabetes, they have a complete insulin deficiency. Their body just doesn't produce almost an, almost no there's no production of insulin whatsoever clinically meaningful i mean and therefore if somebody's undiagnosed and has type 1 diabetes the, the blood sugar level might be very high all the time but then when you you know start treating them with insulin uh, these blood glucose profiles tend to um, tend to react more to what type of insulin you've given them because they they just depend on the insulin you're giving whereas the type 2 diabetes people there's a bit of an insulin resistance and that can that can be managed as you know with tablets and other medications so there are some you know features or types of of cgm traces in those two types of diabetes yeah but eventually some people with type 2 diabetes then go into what we call the the the, the insulin deficiency their pancreas gets uh, so, so too tired, I would say, and just uh, can't produce any insulin anymore. And these people might then also need insulin, just like those with type one diabetes.
1: Mm, okay, um, has there ever been an attempt to like really finely control people's sugar responses to see like how how finely you can control them?
2: That's right. So the holy grail might be the so-called artificial pancreas. I'm sure you all about you heard about this, which would be a a completely a closed loop system in a way where um, the the insulin will be administered via the insulin pump, but the the dosing of the insulin would be um, managed by an algorithm, and that will be influenced, of course, by the by the actual sugar levels. And this is already happening. We have seen some great advances in the technology um, in in the last decade. But as I mentioned before, the key a blocking element to achieve that is that we just don't have fast enough insulins to put into that pump that would be able precisely and timely uh, act on the on the actual sugar levels. So we have the faster ever insulins, like for example the the, the Fiasp or the Lumjev, the, the second generation fast acting insulins. Those are perhaps nearing to that uh, to that profile you would get in a healthy person in terms of how quickly they start acting, but then still they are in a subcutaneous tissue and they are there for a couple of hours. So that's a bit different to what I've been describing in how our pancreas works when we don't have diabetes.
1: Well, yeah, I, I guess there are maybe better feedback mechanisms or, you know, different mixtures or, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Um, how good is our native pancreas at controlling our sugar levels and our body, you know, in a healthy person?
2: Um, in fact, very good, very good. And, the reason is that uh, the, uh, as I mentioned before, the uh, glucose is the obligatory fuel for our brain, and the brain just doesn't have any storage capacities for glucose. So you need a very tightly controlled mechanisms uh, so that the, the brain function uh, doesn't get uh, somehow interrupted or put into, doesn't get put into danger by too high, say say say, more, too low sugar levels. So our pancreas is very good in controlling blood sugar levels in the state of fasting and also in the state, so-called the postprandial state, that means after the ingestion of a meal. And it's a very tightly and precisely regulated system, which keeps the sugar within a reasonably narrow range, really.
1: Well, in uh, have you studied healthy people and people all are on the continuum of diabetes? Like, what's the first loss of regu- regulatory control does it happen during sleep does it happen during stress i mean you know longitudinally like has anyone looked at this
2: uh, sorry you mean in terms of uh blood glucose- like okay
1: so if, if i start off and i'm healthy yeah. um, will i have any hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic events and once i as i start down the road towards you know getting sicker and sicker and more towards diabetes What's going to be some of the first things that will happen? Has anyone identified that? Like, will nighttime be the, the initial time when you start to see like hypo or hyper events or is it during okay, times of okay. stress or what's the first to go yeah. in terms of regulatory okay. capacity?
2: So in general, you would, so hypoglycemia is not much common in people who do not have diabetes or, or people who don't have diabetes and take insulin or the, the so-called sulfonylureas or other medications. So, so, so hypoglycemia, which is really relevant for the doctors, is very, very extremely rare rather in, in people who don't have diabetes, much more rarer than, than the actual diabetes. So if you are on the path, say, if you, if you are in the danger of getting type 1 diabetes, start with a more you know, dramatic course, uh, then you know, what happens in in the pancreas is that there is an autoimmune process, which gradually destroys all the cells that produce insulin. The pancreas has a lot of sort of cells which are, you know, there, the beta cells, and only when you lose approximately 70-80% of the cells, then you start getting symptoms because your sugar levels go up. And these symptoms will be the classic ones. You will get thirsty, you will, you know, need to drink a lot, you will need to Uh, pass a lot of urine you might get tired you might get you might lose some weight in fact and these are indeed very unpleasant symptoms which then leads lead uh, to reasonably quick diagnosis mostly in type one in type two the the process is more um, lengthy and it's not so um, it's not so dramatic so people who have type two diabetes might just have a bit of a Increase blood sugar levels, uh, you know, when they wake up or after the meals, and then might not notice that for quite a long time, indeed. So for a couple of years, their diabetes might get unnoticed. In, and, and, and the first thing they might notice is a complication of diabetes, say, for example, a, a myocardial infarction, or, or other things, really. So it's a bit different in, in type two and type one. Hmm.
1: Okay, what do you think is going to be the future of, uh, you know, blood sugar control and stopping hypo or hyper events like you know what's coming out either in your, your research or in the next couple of years what's your feeling
2: yeah so in, in my own research we trying to identify those people who are in particular danger of these dangerous consequences of hypoglycemia If you want these kind of cardiac arrhythmias sudden cardiac death etc and uh, we've been trying to identify those people by you know various measures but so far, so far, we have not been able to um, you know, reliably uh, say who out of these, you know, lot of people is in particular danger of that. Uh, but to answer your, perhaps your question in terms of what's the future in general, I think uh, people are start, uh, starting to appreciate the, the problem of hypoglycemia in a bit of a broader aspect. So we know that the hypoglycemia is bad to the cardiovascular health, it can lead to um, you know, various pathologies and, and therefore people who manage diabetes, the clinician or, or the diabetes nurses are perhaps going to um, uh, pay a bit more attention to the fact that it's not only the high readings which are dangerous, it's also the low readings which are dangerous. And you have all the wonderful technology here, but also let's not forget about the education, which is sometimes a bit missed in terms of place in the in the. Uh, in the management of diabetes. We have some wonderful data also from, from the UK and all over the world that education is very good. In fact, in, um, preventing hypos happening and in improving the glycemic control overall. So I think it's, it's going to be very exciting and we'll see a mixture of novel technologies coming in. We'll see a mixture of novel insulin and treat insulins and treatments coming in. And, uh, we have now some novel medications, uh, for type 2 diabetes, who, which, which don't tend to cause a lot of hypos, really. So I, I think we gradually getting there, and the clinical problem hypoglycemia uh, is being paid attention to.
1: Okay, very good. Well, Peter, what's the best way for people to find out about your particular research? Where can they go?
2: So, yeah, well, I'm a bit of a transition period. I moved from the UK to Slovakia, and I do some research at the Institute for Clinical and Experimental Medicine in Prague, which is in Czech Republic. So uh, at the moment, the best way of uh, contacting me is to email me on my email address. And uh, I'm also, I do also have a Facebook account. But I think the best way of, of contacting me would be through the email. Okay,
1: very good. Well, Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review
1: us on iTunes.